What do you consider to be unusual? Oh, I don't know. What do you recommend? Welcome to the CuffCast, a resource of all films underground, weird, and strange, unusual, the types of movies we show at the Calgary Underground Film Festival. I'm Cuff Lead Programmer and your host, Cameron McGowan, and with me today, I'm super excited to celebrate Hobo with a Shotgun's 10th anniversary with Kareem Hussein and Jason Eisner, and Amelia Moses and Mike Peterson swung by to discuss their werewolf horror film, Bloodthirsty. Stick around. At the most recent Calgary Underground Film Festival in April 2021, we were super excited to celebrate National Canadian Film Day with a 10th anniversary presentation of the seminal Canadian classic Hobo with a Shotgun. And as a part of this event, I had the opportunity of interviewing writer-director Jason Eisner and cinematographer Kareem Hussein to talk about, you know, what Hobo looks like 10 years later. So as a part of Cuff, we had a 15-minute snippet of this interview, but the conversation got so good that we just want to release the full, unedited, Hobo with a Shotgun 10th Anniversary special interview with Kareem Hussein and Jason Eisner for your enjoyment. All right, we're at Canadian Horror Movies. I think you know a thing or two about Canadian Horror Movies. Rhett used to write for this website, Canucksploitation. I shouldn't say this website. The Holy Grail Encyclopedia of Canadian Cult Films. Canucksploitation. Paul Krupe's project. Pet project for many years. He's still keeping it going. And yeah, Rhett used to write for this website. And Rhett was planning like a Porky's book at one point. So, <laughs> Rhett, what got you stoked on Canadian cinema or Canadian horror cinema back? Because you've been into it since you were like 19, 18, 19. Yeah, even younger, yeah. And it was prom night, actually, when I was a kid. That was one of the first horror movies I watched, and I, I was so surprised to learn that it was Canadian when I saw the credits, even though they have uh, American flags and everything in it, and they tried to pr hide the fact that they were. That was the thing that got me thinking, like, wait a minute, like, we make movies like that here? And so I'd really champion any time I'd find that out. And then when I found out, you know, naturally looking on the internet, you know, what's the highest grossing film of all time in, in Canada? And it was Porky's. I, I just found that amazing that, you know, this movie that I'm sure everyone wants to sweep under the rug is, is Canada's uh, Helped build our industry. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I really championed that. I made a website all about the Porky's films. And, and from there, you know, I found Canucksploitation and I reached out to Paul and was like, I'd love to write more, you know, Canadian stuff to feature more Canadian films because there was some other ones I watched in my childhood that I hadn't seen written about like the Tales for All series from uh, Montreal and so yeah I just want to give a voice to that and just find whatever I could it was a great it still is a great resource for me to find you know Canadian stuff that I haven't seen and I'm trying to see it all because you know what it's so unique like that's the thing any of those Canadian films, they have to work so hard to be made and they're often with low budgets and, and really quirky ideas. They're, they're, they're a lot different than your indie films that you get from the, the States. So. Yeah, the, the best is that it's like so many of Canadian films, they, they've tried to pretend to be American movies, but you can't. There's this uncanny valley that happens no matter what. It takes time to see though. Mm -hmm. and, but in 20 years, when you look back, you're like, I know you're saying that's Seattle. I know you're saying that's New York, 
we know where you are. Yeah, yeah. We know where you are, Michael Ironside. <laughs> so we put this question out to a few of our guests uh, on today's episode, but Rep, after talking about it and thinking about it, what do you think it is about the Canadian sensibilities that draw Canadians to want to make and watch nasty movies? In Canada, I think we have lower budgets, and so there's maybe less interference in terms of what our visions can be. And I think because we're always competing with America, it's like we sort of have this want to tell stories that are different than the ones that they're doing. And so I think that gives us a, an outlet to, to tell these more unique stories that maybe m might be more influenced by the fact that we're more isolated or that we're, we have different sort of regional differences between the different parts of Canada that kind of come out and flourish. So, yeah, I don't know. There's, there's qualities that... And that's a special sauce about ca Canadian films is that there's, you know, there's just something a little bit different about them and it's tough to really quantify. What do you think? Well, I think there's just such a rich history of... It's crazy films to be inspired by and to go, wait, that was Canadian to have your prom night moment. Wait, that was Canadian? Because again, we're so used to being portrayed as other cities that when someone actually does set something in Canada with a Canadian POV, but tries to aim for the stars and make it crazy and outrageous and stand out, that it always makes for a nice sauce that I also like to consume. And that sauce is spread all over the movies we're about to discuss in today's episode, Hobo with a Shotgun and Bloodthirsty. And honestly, I was so excited when Jason Eisner and Kareem Hussein confirmed this meeting, man. It was a true honor to speak to these Canadian icons about Hobo with a Shotgun. Spread the word, you dirty cocksuckers. Tell all your grave robbing friends on what the matter of the city now! Oh, with a shotgun. The streets gave birth to a stray dog who is now fed up. Living on the streets is tough. And it's about to get tougher. You want in on this $10? Come on! Violence, cruelty, murder. The streets will be lonelier because this hobo's taken off. He's cashing in his nickels and dimes for a new way of life. But getting out isn't that easy. Give me the money or I'll this bitch up! This hero is going to have to deliver justice one shell at a time. Hobo with a shotgun. Rated R. So it's great to have uh, Kareem and Jason, the cinematographer of Hobo the Shotgun and the writer-director of Hobo the Shotgun with us today. Thanks for joining us, gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks for having us. In celebration of National Canadian Film Day, uh, let's start by discussing your personal favorite Canadian movies. Oh, my. Um, probably like the one that's just always on my heart that like comes up right away is um, Paul Donovan's uh, 1982 film Siege that was shot here in Halifax. And um, it's like this low budget film that he did uh, at the time for like $200,000. Uh, shot it in his own apartment it was just it's always been inspiring a movie that was shot in Halifax it's like this genre movie that's like really reaching to like you know try and reach an audience outside of like Canada yeah I just I've always found that film to be very inspiring I've wanted to watch it really badly there was a similar one made in Alberta that David Winning made up I forget what it was called it was about a paintball battle gone wrong it was like southern comfort but with a paintball fight in the oh, woods that sounds familiar yeah, if I remember the title, I'll uh, send it over yeah, to you. Yeah, I'd love to see that. Kareem, you got any personal favorites? Yeah, I mean, you know, probably 
one of my my all-time favorites is uh, David Cronenberg's Videodrome, which touches on a lot of my obsessions uh, <laughs> and favorite things. So I think that's probably, you know, that and Crash, I think, are probably uh, two of my favorite uh, Canadian pictures. But, you know, going to other directors other than other than the sort of more mainstream thing. I mean, I, I quite like Wedding in White by William Fruitt. I think that's a pretty great movie. Um, still on the Fruitt camp, uh, Death Weekend, Rituals, I think is a oh, fantastic movie. Yeah, I'm a awesome. big fan of Rituals. Um, you know, pictures like that. Killer Party, was that Fruitt? Uh, yes. Oh man, <laughs> I love that movie. And uh, any love for The Pit, gentlemen? Yeah, oh, the pit's great. Yeah, but but the, pit, the pit wasn't all shot in Canada. I think the pit was a Canadian production, but shot in the United States. Oh, uh, like we cannot mistaken. show it for National Canadian Film Day then. Yeah. We'll go with I Pin then. can, because I think, I think it's that and uh, is, is technically a movie. Pin is great. I love Pin as well. Pin is a wonderful movie. Pin. How could we yeah. forget Pin? Pin is a we great can't. Canadian film. Definitely good value there. Mm -hmm. Well, this leads me to my next question. Why do us Canadians make such weird movies, Kareem? I'm showcasing a, a DVD of Subconscious Cruelty, one of the strangest Canadian movies of all time. Oh, no, Blu-ray. It's a Blu-ray. That's a Blu-ray. That's a Blu-ray. That's Yeah, where did you one. get that? That's a Germany. Austrian uh, German release that, wow. that came out. That they put out the Blu-ray. Well, I don't know. I mean, that comes from a lot of uh, childhood angst, uh, you know, comes from a lot of rage as a youngster being confronted by the horrible world of adults, you know, confronting of how awful things can be, obsession, things like that. It's like a children's movie almost today, you know, subconscious <laughs> cruelty. It's really a movie about, you know, young people's obsessions. Everything is terrible. And plus, it's a byproduct of the early 90s and very early 90s. So, you know, like that's just sort of what young people with film cameras did back then. It's wild, man. I just watched Limbo again last night and it gave me strong echoes of that time period and I was jealous I didn't get to be a part of that. But the reason I actually picked this up, we'll get back to my question. The reason I picked this up is that the uh, special feature on Jim Van Beber's Manson Family DVD, where he visits Fantasia to try to finish the movie, was one of the most inspirational documentaries to me. And I, w I wanted any documentary or uh, special feature footage that fe featured you or Mitch just because of the candor and passion that you gentlemen had for the genre. So uh, yeah, definitely pick up that Manson family disc for those special features. They're essential for any burgeoning filmmaker. And uh, Kareem has the longest, most beautiful hair in uh, this footage. That's true. Uh, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's good it's gone. You know, it's like, <laughs> definitely that's, that's one less plague upon humanity. There's enough these days. <laughs> So, so back to my question, why do Canadians want to make such weird movies? What, what do you think it is that's ingrained in Canadian culture that we want to make such strange, effective movies? I don't know. I think, I think it's a veil of politeness that Canadians have. You know, as a culture, we're encouraged to be nice, and that's a good thing. But, you know, throughout this sort of external, nice happy, polite, clean surface, a human being is an animal and will will have these sort of alternate desires and thoughts that put in and the best place to put them in is within the safe confines of art. Bad to do these things in reality, very bad. But uh, within the context of art, it's catharsis. It's a way of getting things through to sort of fight the politeness, even though uh, I believe in politeness and I think it's a good thing. You know, within the confines of art, it's sort of a rebellion from this this more sort of sedate 
uh, at least perception that one has of oneself, you know, a lot of this stuff can come from people growing up in more isolated spots, um, suburbs or smaller towns and things like that. And there's not a lot of extreme stimuli other than you know, relatively good things that hit you. And uh, when you're a young person, you tend to fight good things and, uh, and try to find your own path. So I think a lot of the weirdness comes from that sort of rebellion against uh, what is expected of you. And that sort of rebellion against what um, people think is the status quo. Mm-hmm. I also think too that even in genre and as like you know far fetched as it could go or high concept, you'll usually find in Canadian cinema there's like there's truth in it somewhere. You know, there's like some real truth that you know, like a, a real message uh, beneath all the you know the wacky craziness of it all. Totally. Yeah, and I think that's important also that. You know, a lot of Canadian pictures, uh, like a lot of, you know, American and European international genre films are always reflections of the political times that they're in and reflections of the socio-political issues that are going on within the context of fantasy or, you know, a fantastic element. But I think Canadian pictures uh, are no slouches by putting social commentary within there. And Hobo is an absolute example of that. Hobo is... Uh, was, was very much thought about a lot of sort of sociopolitical and primarily socioeconomic issues are, are definitely in that movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's a long line running through genre films from the Reitman, Cronenberg ones that still bleed into, yeah, Turbo Kid, Hobo the Shotgun, even Psycho Gorman, which I revisited last night, has some yeah. great messages great. in it. So good. Yeah. Yeah, so good. I had a Winnipeg friend whose theory was that it, we spend so much time inside in Canada and the good dream of what the wicked do. So we just spend a lot of time going, oh, I wonder what the bad people are up to uh, out there. I wonder what the creeps are up to. So that's a nice segue to Hobo. Um, so the genesis of Hobo, as far as I know, I saw the trailer uh, before Grindhouse like everybody and felt the pure national pride that this was the best of the trailers sandwiched in the Rodriguez Tarantino Grindhouse film. A big fan of the film. The trailers were good. The Thanksgiving trailer is awesome. But the Hobo trailer brought down the house. Let's go back. What was young Jason doing before making the faux trailer for Hobo with a shotgun? Oh, man. What was I doing? I think um, I was out of school and I was making just like films with my friends um, and just, you know, working at a comic book video game store during the week and then shooting whenever I could, like on the weekends. And then it was around that time when there was that contest that Rodriguez and Tarantino had for Grindhouse to make like a fake trailer. There was also like this uh, reality show that Steven Spielberg putting on as well. I forget what it was called, but it was another. The Adam Wingard show that he he didn't make the cut. Adam got cut. That's right. Adam was was on it, right? What? uh, The the directors of Freaks, uh, the Canadian sci-fi film Freaks that came out a couple years ago, were on that show as well. They had some stories, man. I don't... Right. Yeah, Zach was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. So we were, like, thinking about doing something for that. But then when we saw the announcement for this contest, that I thought we, like, could possibly stand a chance at, like, doing something that could create some noise for that contest. And so right away, like they didn't really give you that much time. I thought it was like two weeks. <laughs> I think that like they announced it and then with two weeks, you had to go shoot it, cut it, compose music for it and get it up online. And so it was like literally the next day, I think we started shooting 
uh, me and Rob Cotterell and uh, John Davies, a writer. I don't know if we use any of the footage from that day. I can't remember, but it just like got us to start shooting. And then whenever we could find a couple hours within the week where people were available, we would go out and just steal locations. And I was just thinking the other day too, like there's a shot in it where we're inside like a Canadian submarine. And I had a friend whose dad was like the oldest living submariner in the world. And he thought, oh, like these guys just want to like shoot a movie on a submarine. Like I'll get them on, you know? And so he snuck us on and I shot all these shots in there. And then afterwards the trailer went viral and he was like, oh shit. Like I didn't think it would be like something that that was that popular. And I got reached out by so many people who were like, how did you get shots on the submarine? Like, how (laughs) is that even possible? (laughs) But yeah, we were... Oh, yeah, there's a lot of stories from the making of that trailer that were uh, crazy because, yeah, we didn't get permits and we were just like running around the streets. <laughs> shooting. But yeah, even, even online, it felt like the surefire winner. I don't remember. Was this a Canadian contest or was this a North American contest? It was a North American contest or maybe even a world contest. World contest. Um, I think it was. Yeah, because there was there was trailers from all over the world. That's great. And so then was it originally supposed to be included with the print of Grindhouse? No, uh, there was literally no promise of anything. Like there was not even a like you didn't even know if there was an award or uh, what they were going to do with it. I just was excited about the idea of people I really looked up to seeing something that I created. But it wasn't until like uh, afterwards it went viral that Alliance Atlantis or Alliance, the Canadian distributor, they really wanted to support it. And they took the trailer, which we shot for like a couple hundred bucks on mini DV tape. And they made, like, I can't remember how many film prints of it that they made, but they attached it to, like, every film print of Grindhouse in Canada. Well, you know what's funny is I was working at Color by Deluxe by that time, doing this assembly line job where the prints were coming in. There were a lot of them, man. And I actually quit on the spot. I'd been working there for two weeks, and then it was the day the Grindhouse prints were being made. And I was having the movie spoiled for me in 11-minute chunks. So I just just left. I was like, nah, I don't want to do this job anymore. I don't don't want to ruin this movie. For this crappy job. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was, that was my year in Toronto. Anyway, enough wow. about me. Yeah, it was trippy, man. But that movie, uh, that was just very formative for a lot of us, man. A lot of genre kids were really rooting for you. And then to follow that up with Treevenge was just like, this guy's got the goods. Like, people watch this dude. So, where was the Hobo the Shotgun feature development? Where does Treevenge fit in around there? Yeah, so like when Grindhouse came out and Alliance attached the trailer, they flew us up to Toronto to meet a producer by the name of Neve Finchman um, from Rama's Media. And it was odd because like I look up his IMDb page and it's, you know, it's the guy who produces like the Red Violin and Blindness and all these movies that just were not like genre movies or remotely kind of in the world of Hobo with the Shotgun. But they um, they set up this dinner and we just like hit it off. We had this like great night. It was hilarious. And he just got passionate about it and uh, supported us. And so we were trying to go the traditional route of going through telefilm and all that kind of stuff. And it was very difficult because it had been a long time since telefilm had done anything within in the genre or anything like this. And so it was we thought we made the trailer and we wanted to prove that we weren't just like a one trick pony kind of thing. And so we thought, let's do something a little longer and maybe we could make something that will just like help 
we wanted to tell the story, the tree Venn short, like was something we were going to probably do regardless. But we thought like if we did it well, that could maybe help us with right. pushing Hobo with a shotgun through the door. And man, that short went so beyond our expectations. I just, yeah, I couldn't believe it. I remember, I think the first screening of it was at the Fantasia Film Festival in Montreal. It was the first time I ever, I think, had a movie play outside of my hometown. And, you know, when you're playing a movie in your hometown, you got your friends and your family and everyone wants to see it. They want you to win, you know. They love it already. They love, yeah. And so I was really nervous, like, about, you know, how is this going to play somewhere that I don't know anyone in the audience. And, man, when that short played, I, like, felt like I won, like, a, like the Stanley Cup or something. I don't know. Like, <laughs> people in the audience were just going nuts. And, like, the amount of appreciation they had and, like, afterwards, they were just coming up to me, like, being so excited about it. That was just truly so inspirational and made me feel like, oh man, this is, yeah, like we're, you know, we're on to something here. And then it played Sundance and it got nominated for the best short film there. And with that, that really, I think, helped to convince like Telefilm and some people to really get behind us. That's amazing, man. One quick question. How good were you and Rob at the internet at this time? Because going viral now, you can kind of plan it. But back then, it kind of felt like the Wild West, for lack of a better term. It did, kind of, yeah. And um, it's funny, like, it felt like the beginning stages of YouTube. And I'm trying to remember how it went. I think I had another little short that I did called The Number to Heaven. It's like a 30-second short that, like, went viral. And I remember, like, I would just, I was obsessed with, like, movie news and how trailers were released at the time. And so I think when we dropped the trailer, like, I had, like, strategically, like, figured out what was, like, the best timing, like, what was the best time of day to, like, put it on YouTube and what time people would be online to like see it and share it and then even when it came to the feature film version of dropping the trailer people asked me like what was the best way to do it and I helped uh, kind of facilitate the, the dropping of the trailer uh, <laughs> so you inadvertently became a social media influencer before such a thing existed no definitely like we were so hands-on with all of that stuff um because we were such movie fans and we like you know we knew just how like we responded to seeing how other movies release material and so we were trying to just feed our audience like we were trying to take everyone along for the ride as well too while we were making the movie you know we were posting clips along the way kind of documenting like the experience of it and then uh, we had like a crew um, like a friend of mine, Kevin Frazier, who uh, followed me and all of us through the process of making Hobo with a Shotgun. And um, in some ways, that's like, like, I love that documentary even more than the movie <laughs> to a degree, because it's just, it's so honest. And um, it's such a great depiction of uh, like what we went through making the movie. Well, it's, it's funny. I, yeah, not to jump ahead, but on this podcast, we do talk a lot about how inspirational the candid behind the scenes documentaries can be and how important it is to still make them to this day. Because uh, I know a lot of people, those early trauma documentaries were extremely inspirational in teaching them how to actually make a movie and showing them it's kind of boring and kind of stressful, but when it's awesome, it's supremely awesome. And so it's great to see that you've grabbed the torch and the boys at Astron 6 have grabbed the torch of uh, trying to train the next generation. Yeah, that's why you got to hang on to those DVDs, man. 
yeah it's true all it's the true extra features yeah man because uh, yeah they don't make them like they used to but on the boutique ones they do but anyway you now have experienced producer Niv Fishman attached you have some telefilm money and in my mind Kareem would be the obvious choice but was Kareem the obvious choice to shoot this film for you and how did you first reach out I think for Kareem it started with you and Rob on subconscious cruelty did, did yeah. it not yeah, Rob worked on Subconscious Cruelty, and we've been friends since, you know, the early 90s. So it was that connection that came through. Um, and I met Jay, I think it was it a genre convention before Fantasia? Oh, might have been. was. It was. Yeah. The yeah. Fan Expo thing in Something, Toronto? yeah. I think it was Fan Expo. We met there. Then, wow. then we met uh, at Fantasia for Trevenge. Um, yeah. And of course, we all spoke the same language. Yes. Yeah. Jay is like a member of the family, you know, it was, it was immediate. Hobo was my sixth feature film, which, you know, seems like a lot for directing, but for a DP isn't, isn't that much, you know? So I had done a few pictures. I had done one particularly larger picture before then that that wasn't any good, but it was, you know, still at the time we had like 8 million US dollars to make the movie. And that was combined with everything else and shot in Regina and everything today would be at least $20 million to make that movie at least. So it was like a big thing I learned a lot on. And uh, I had done another picture after that one uh, in Montreal that Jay saw a movie called Territories that you know, had a very sort of rough 16 mil look, uh, very 70s, you know, blood in the crazy. face was one of the influences on this movie. You know, that's a crazy Canadian movie. That yeah, it's wild, man. Not a lot of people know about that movie. And then afterwards, we were just speaking and we have a lot of the same obsessions, a lot of the same genre pictures that we yeah. all love. And, you know, I went to Halifax uh, a couple months before we shot the movie, maybe two or three months before. Yeah. Uh, I didn't have anything going on. I was a bum. Yeah. And uh, the development process was there. I was living in Rob's basement for the entirety of the shoot. Yeah. And uh, we would just get together, uh, eat obscene amounts of uh, Ronnie's pizza. Uh, That's you could, right. you know, <laughs> um, Or other pizzas, because Ronnie's was a bit far out, but we would get Ronnie's whenever we could. And yeah. uh, we would just go in the basement, watch movies. Uh, we had gel swatch pads. We would choose colors. We would cut out the colors and staple them to scenes as yep. to what it was. And the script is being rewritten at that time uh, with Jay, Rob, and John Davies uh, in the basement and myself. Uh, and it was just like an ongoing process uh, of just a lot of probably pretty unhygienic development. I remember the smell in that room at one point, all these you know, stupid boys and pizza and you oh. know, <laughs> it was, it was a little intense, but, uh, <laughs> you know, we would, we, we wouldn't sleep. We didn't care. This was our passion. This was the best thing ever. We were so happy. Yeah. It, and like, if Rob was here too, he would talk about probably like how, you know, this is my first, it was my first feature film and um, Rob knew how much like Kareem would care and Kareem's more than just a, you know, the cinematographer, like he should be like one of the top producers on the movie too, because he's dealing with every aspect of, of the film, but he, like Kareem brought so much confidence, at least for me. And I, like, I look back at it, like, you know, it was like at times like this crazy stressful traumatic experience making a movie, but like having like Kareem, he's just so chill and he's so, creative in the moment uh with coming up with solutions 
um, I just knew that that side of production would just always be like taken care of because like Kareem, you're just, you're more obsessive about it and more of a perfectionist about it than like, you know, anyone else could be. Kareem like was like a therapist as well, helping me deal with you know, I never worked with like big actors before. And the idea of working with Rucker Hauer was so nerve wracking because uh, he was my favorite actor growing up and he's worked with some of my favorite directors. And so whenever I would feel intimidated about that kind of stuff, like Kareem was able to like coach me into uh, into building the confidence to uh, to direct uh, someone like Rucker. Well, I mean, it's a two-way street, right? Because, yeah. you know, it's like, uh, obviously, collaborating with Jay, who is so open-minded and so creative, and also an excellent, you know, camera operator on on his own. It, we we spoke a lot of the same language in yeah. that way, and, uh, and that's just great, you know, like, and also just the desire to innovate and to do creative things. Uh, is is certainly a part of that process of, of invention, which is very exciting yeah. for someone like me, even though, you know, Hobo, I was still a relatively youngish DP at that time. I think it was just like a perfect confluence of personalities. And, yes. uh, you know, we were kids. We were stupid. We would do anything. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and, uh, and, and much to the confusion and dismay of a lot of the more experienced people uh, on board. And I think, you know, Rudger, it took him, maybe a week or so to sort of get into the groove. But once he got into the groove, he was, yeah. he was definitely into the groove. Like, cause it was not done with the way a normal movie would be done. I mean, it was done so fast. I mean, the thing, the thing with Jay as a director is uh, Jay really keeps you on your toes because uh, there's constant invention, constant new stuff coming. So you have to really know how to walk and chew gum when, uh, when, when DPing for Jay. Uh, you know, and, uh, and that's just great for me because I come from that world yeah. of constant invention. Whereas I think for Rudger, it took him a little bit like, you know, what the hell's going on here? This is so fast. <laughs> I can't, I can't breathe in between setups, you know, um, yeah. but then took him, had, took him back to the Verhoeven days. Uh, no, I think that that was even slower than this. Oh yeah. Turkish, <laughs> Turkish <laughs> delay. This was fast. This is really fast. Yeah, like this was crazy was fast. Crazy fast. How many days did y'all shoot in? Is it 24? Nice. A lot of was it, it was like, like 23, and then we like yeah. did a day of sure. us running around. Yeah. So you talked about playing with gels in the basement, but how else do you get a movie to look like it's processed in toxic waste? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because today I would do it all differently. I would use all completely different lenses and completely different cameras. But back then, uh, the Red Mysterium X was brand new. It was like still in the huge, expensively heavy box that it was. It's a, it's a different thing. Um, so what we did was we basically cranked up the saturation to a point where it was almost beyond legality for broadcast. Uh, and that was basically the look of the movie. Uh, we did it all on set. Everything was done on set and it was just regular color grading tricks. And we added a particularly heavy amount of green to it. Uh, in post-production, the whole movie was done at like 1600 ASA. So it was done, you know, quite sensitive. So, and it was lit um, knowing the way Jay would want to shoot it. I lit for the close-ups when I lit the wides because I know Jay has no patience for relighting for close-ups and I get it, you know, and it was done entirely with short zooms. And, you know, Jeff Wheaton was our uh, B camera operator and, and second unit DP on it. And and Jeff, who's who's wonderful, was also pulling focus himself, which is a very difficult feat to do. 
But in order to accomplish that, knowing that we would have to go for a deep focus movie, lit the hell out of it. I mean, like the the levels of light on the set were very bright. Um, knowing that Jay's favorite thing in the world at that time was you're over here, then you step forward and you move in on someone's face. Okay. To do that <laughs> and to keep it in focus, uh, you need a deep stop and a relatively wide lens. So um, so I knew also since Wheaton was going to be focusing himself, I knew they needed a thick depth of field because if not, it just wouldn't have worked. So, um, so all those things were well thought out when we did it. And, uh, you know, the most important thing when you're lighting for Jay, you like for the close up because he's just going to take the camera himself and go in. So it's like, if you don't, yeah. you know, you, you better be ready. Yeah. So, you know. uh, the people are going to want to know, Jason, how did you go about locking down the raccoons theme for the end credits? I think um, I had like pulled up an old script. Like I was just looking through like old like stuff I had here. And I realized like I hadn't looked at this stuff since I made the movie. And at the beginning of the script there, it says, Lisa Lohe's run with us. It's like, and I knew like from the tone in which the movie ended, like everyone was trying to convince me to make the ending have like a, you know, more positive vibe to it, you know, have the hobo like die at the end of the movie. It was like a, a big battle and everyone thought it was just going to end on a downer and that, but I kept trying to convince them like, no, if we use run with us, no matter what, people are going to leave the theater being like, damn, like they're going to be like pumped up, you know, because I love that song from Ra the raccoons cartoon TV show as a kid, there was something about it that was like with what that show was like about and like the, the subject matter and like even the style of the cartoon is like kind of dark and has like these dark tones to it. And then that song, it's like, it's pumping, but yet there still is a dark, like kind of tone to it. And it makes, it's like it run with us. It's like this join the movement. And, um, and I just felt that that would be like a great way to end the movie. And, you know, also like almost like a tip of the hat to something that inspired my childhood. And so much of Hobo with a Shotgun was uh, inspired by things from my from my youth. So that just felt like the, the perfect way to, to end it. Yeah, when I, when I watched it again, it really felt like the perfect mashup of First Blood and the Toxic Avenger. <laughs> yeah, that's a... That's a good comparison. Love both of those movies. Yeah. yeah. I mean, with the dead, deadbeat of dawn thrown in, but when I was watching it, I was like, a, a teenager could would be so behind this as like, yeah, first blood set in the toxic Avenger universe. Yeah. Like, and this is really, really nerdy, but like, you know, toxic Avenger I love, but also toxic crusaders, the like cartoon spinoff and the, the action figure toy line. It's on Tubi for listeners at home. You can watch it on oh, Tubi. Really? Yeah. Damn. Yeah, it's been forever since I've seen it. But even Hobo with a Shotgun, like, I was thinking of it in terms of, like, my own action figure toy line if I was a kid. Like, every character should stand out like a, an action figure. You should be able to see the hobo's, like, silhouette and know just from a silhouette, like, who that character is. Same with, like, the villains and everything. So in the back burner, I'm designing this, like, behind the scenes, I'm, like, designing it in a way that, like, the toy lines I grew up with that I loved, you know, what would be that toy line universe for Hobo? <laughs> uh, yeah. On that note, isn't it so wonderful that Stephen got uh, the Psycho Gorman uh, Happy Meal box at uh, the Lester B's fast food places? 
I didn't see that. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, dude, you got a little Happy Meal box, and there's little Psycho Gorman toys that they're making now that are out later this year. Yeah, that's so cool. I saw, I've been following some of those. Those are amazing. And you definitely inspired those guys, man. So thanks oh, for yeah. doing all, everything that you he's do. Like a, he's like a part of the family, you know. Uh, love love him and uh, his uh, the DP of Psycho Gorman, Andrew so Powell. Good. He's a DP of my my TV show Dark Side of the Ring. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's a uh, the Canadian film world. It's you know we have our family within it that spans all across the country. So uh, let's talk about how you felt about the reception of Hobo with a Shotgun and maybe how you felt uh, the distributors dealt with it and um, any any future projects you wanted with the Hobo IP that may have not come to light. Yeah. Um, well, at the time of the release, it, I don't know, it felt amazing. Like it was, um, I was just nonstop traveling with the film and I never had like an experience like that. You know, I got to go to like Spain to Sichez, which was like an amazing film festival. It premiered at, at the Sundance Film Festival. And I made so many relationships like through that experience and like met so many other filmmakers from around the world that like I still uh, connect with. Yeah, like there's, you know, we had 35 millimeter prints of our movie, you know, playing all through, uh, Canada and the States, which was uh, just really surreal. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I don't know. The like the response to it was so great, you know, and it still is to this day. It's cool to see like how people are still hitting me up about that movie all the time. And so many people make like fan art for it. And there were so many cool things that were made um, at uh, for the movie at the time, like the Alamo Draft House made it like an arcade machine and like a video game for uh, for your phone uh, for Hobo the Shotgun and like all the different releases of the movie like like the one in like Germany was like so cool like the Canadian Blu-ray was sick because they like did this like pop-up book thing oh, in it which was yeah. so cool I've never seen that before yeah the like the team at uh, Alliance like were like big supporters of the movie and like really uh went to town on the the release of the blu-ray and they let us like pack it all with like extra features and shit that shouldn't be on there that we didn't really license i like i don't even know how it made its way onto the onto the blu-ray but there's stuff that shouldn't be on this blu-ray and it's probably not on any other releases since so if you find the old school original uh hobo the shotgun blu-ray there's a bunch of material that if, I think it's through the shotgun mode. If you go yeah. through that, yeah, I shouldn't even be saying this right now. <laughs> it's ten years. It's been ten years. You know? <laughs> at me. Yeah, I mean, there's um, so many extras on that Blu-ray that actually the movie itself, because it's so grainy, the compression of the movie suffers because there are so many extras on that blu-ray that the red scenes the grain actually becomes pretty blocky because there's too much there's too many extras Uh, i know that there were some other potential uh hobo ip opportunities that may still come to light but can you talk about uh what story elements those would have touched upon so there's two characters in hobo uh called the plague which are like these bounty hunters from hell and we kind of tease their world a little bit in the movie. You can see when the hobo is captured by them, they take him back to his lair. And there's like um, a wall with paintings of all their past bounties. And um, people were like 
were so in love with those characters and really wanted to see a movie based on them. And we did too, you know, we, um, we were, you know, we always thought like, oh, if our movie's popular enough, it'd be so cool to like take these characters and make their own spinoff. So we did, we wrote uh, a feature film. I actually have like the whole script right here of The Plague. Yeah, it was, uh, we spent like probably like a whole year writing this thing. And it's good. It's amazing. It's like one of the best things we've ever written. It's so crazy, but it just costs too much money. Like this would probably cost like $10 million to make. And, you know, yeah, and, uh, that, that script great. is absolutely fantastic. And, uh, you know, $10 million in the grand scheme of things isn't that much actually. So I think, I have hopes that the plague can still get made one day because I think it's absolutely something that the the world will adore. Um, so the next question is a bit of a big one, gentlemen. How do you keep the indie sensibilities alive on larger productions? And I want to start with Kareem because Possessor is probably one of the most subversive movies I've seen in a very long time. And this is quite far into your repertoire and you're still challenging yourself. So kudos to you, sir. But even your episodes of Hannibal stand out as shot by someone other than their typical DP, it felt like. They had an added flair. So how do you keep your voice alive in the system for both you gentlemen? You know, maybe even to my own own fault. Like I can't do something that I'm not like 120 percent like and fully invested in and I feel like I can like bring my like vision to it and yeah so something like you know you watch something like Dark Side of the Ring my show that I do now that's like a docuseries about the world of professional wrestling and I had a lot of people who like have watched it and then they look me up and they're like oh you're the guy who made Hobo with the shotgun and then they could see like oh I get it with Hobo with the shotgun you know there's a lot of inspiration that I took from wrestling that I like applied to like that movie and then you know now I'm getting to dive into the world of wrestling and bring my like aesthetic to it and what I took because I took so much of my like a lot of my aesthetic really does come from like the 80s world of wrestling and so now I'm just kind of like taking it how it was fed to me and like bring pushing it back onto wrestling but in a more like heightened way and yeah and even with things I've done like I got to do second unit for Adam Wingard's Death Note movie and he brought me on to just let me do my thing you know like he just was like he, he like just trusted me to shoot it the way I shoot my stuff and uh that was cool so like you can when you watch that movie and you see the death scenes in that film it's not too far of a stretch from <laughs> some of the deaths in hobo with a shotgun and even when it's like a huge like a 50 million dollar movie it really didn't feel that much different than being on set for hobo with a shotgun you know the crew is still there you just have more days on something like death Note than you would like hobo and you would have other tools too there could be like a techno crane if you like wanted it or whatever but that can just sometimes bog you down and i just find reverting to my like the the indie instincts that i have for filmmaking always are being used it's like i always feel like i'm no matter how big a production it feels like it's like you're just bringing like your the tools that you've learned from making indie films to to it you know yeah, and much like Jay, I can't do anything halfway. I have to do it a million percent all in. I have to believe in it. I have to love it. So, you know, uh, in the case of these larger pictures, it's not much different for me, only there's, you know, sometimes more time. Uh, ironically, 
if you're sort of in the five to ten million dollar range, you'll have a similar amount of time as Hobo, just you'll have more toys and a bigger yeah. machine to work with, but a same sort of compressed schedule. And yeah, it's just a for me, it's just choosing the directors, making sure that I work with directors that have similar um, sort of obsessions, similar sort of feelings or philosophies or approaches to things. Um, it's not always the case. Sometimes it works, sometimes it works, you know, less, but you always try and put your stamp on it, which is a stamp that goes to the director. I mean, I, I pride myself in that every single movie or TV show or whatever looks different. They might have some common through lines, but it, it's all about the director and, and whatever that person's vision is. And uh, then you can sort of propose things to them and say, okay, maybe let's try this, that, this, that. But it, it's all through the filter of the director's vision. And that for me is the great pleasure um, of collaborating with great directors such as Jay that, uh, that I love working with. You know, it's just like we have a common language. And even though there's more money, even though there's more producers and sort of more pressures put on board, if they've hired you, it's for a reason. It's because they've seen these movies that, that you've done. So they know that they're going to get some of that. I mean, some you have to adapt it depending on the project and depending on the budget size. And, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Like Hannibal, um, I, I can't say was a great experience. It was my first, like, real Hollywood experience where I learned a lot about how that kind of thing works. And I'm glad for the experience because I learned absolutely a ton of how to do that kind of thing today. Like these days I'm in prep on a studio movie, you know? Uh, so it's like that kind of thing was invaluable lessons on sort of the diplomacy and the politics that are involved. But, you know, just because you're doing a studio movie, if it's being done with the right studio and particularly the right producers within that studio, um, as long as they're in on what you want to do and as long as the communication is there and nobody's doing anything weird behind your back, as long as you keep it open, uh, you can do some pretty interesting things. And things are changing. Um, that sort of climate of fear and uh, denigrating your staff and humiliating people and stuff, that's no longer a good thing, which is definitely oh a good thing because that's not the way we, we like to work. Um, but it's the way, say, a show like Hannibal worked, you know, that, that was all based on fear. Everyone was terrified to go to work every day, which is just a terrible vibe. So, yeah. you know, thankfully that's uh, over and done with and not tolerated anymore. Something I heartily approve. Yeah. Right. So you are noticing a change of onset behaviors in recent years? 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to end things off, uh, gentlemen. Well, I want to obviously thank you both for joining us. It was really great to see the brotherhood between you two, the camaraderie. Um, so thank you for opening up. Uh, what's keeping you inspired during these dark times? What art is keeping you juiced up? Yeah, for me lately, it's been um, it's been comic books. I've, Hell yeah, man! Same. I've been just just been going back to it's been a long time since i devoured comic books probably since i was in in the 90s maybe and now that's uh been a great source of inspiration um, what are you what, what are you reading a lot of just like indie stuff from like the 80s and 90s um i've been i've been following uh cartoonist kayfabe and uh my producing partner on dark side of the ring evan husney does this thing called power comics which they dive in john dar yeah, yeah, John Tar. Yeah, I, oh, I got my John Tar downstairs. <laughs> nice. But, uh, but that spirit of the like, 
like making comics then you know where it was oh, yeah. self-published it's like a lot of it you know it was like teenagers you know a lot of them are inspired by teenage mutant ninja turtles that was you know self-made self-published and i get it like you know that spirit is so inspiring to me and it just reminds me of like what it's all about and so i've been devouring those kinds of comics and just even drawing like i've been drawing lately too just because <laughs> i'm inspired by it so that kind of stuff is, yeah, leaking into, like, all my work. Even on Dark Side of the Ring, like, the reenactments I just shot last week, like, I was taking inspiration from, like, the framing, like, you know, the negative space of, like, some of it. And just, like, trying to tell, you know, just being reminded that, you know, we're telling stories in a visual medium, you know? And, like, comic books are so good at just telling a story in a frame. And, you know, that's what I'm trying to do, especially in Dark Side of the Ring. That's a show where I'm trying to paint these like memories, these long lost memories. And if I can do it within like a shot, like a like one shot that kind of tells the story, that's what I'm trying to do. So that's been a big source of inspiration. Mm -hmm. And for you, Kareem, what's keeping you juiced up? I would say, you know, certainly all of these wonderful Blu-rays that are being released uh, from these boutique labels of yeah. oh really God. just great films uh, that I obsessively collect and obsessively watch over and over again that do sometimes have special features, yes, which are great. Just re-delving into those worlds. I mean, uh, I'm lucky enough I have a projector at home, so I'm not necessarily missing um, cinemas so much. I'm missing the communal experience of being there with your friends yeah. and getting the reactions, but the actual experience of seeing something in good quality on a big screen, I can get every day. So, uh, you know, I obsessively watch, rewatch uh, a lot of pictures, a lot of, you know, obviously genre movies, grindhouse movies, uh, surrealist movies, mm -hmm. uh, you name it. Uh, what are some, what are some of the specific new boutique releases that have been getting you stoked? Uh, I think a lot of the Mono Macabro stuff. Oh, that's the best stuff, man. Really good. Uh, a lot of the Vinegar Syndrome stuff. Severin yeah. has been doing an absolutely amazing job. Uh, oh, Severin is putting out new, amazing those new stuff. 4Ks they just put out? Yeah, yeah, yeah sure, sure, yeah. Ooh. Those are great. Uh, you know, Arrow has been doing a phenomenal job. I'm getting really into Nico Masterakis, oh. uh, which, uh, you know, it's like there's uh, some of the later stuff he produces. It's actually really well done and cool. really really interesting stuff great use of the steadicam uh you know i find use of the steadicam in the 80s uh, was very inspiring because it was still pretty new obviously mm -hmm. movies like why do the eyes street trash were yeah. you know huge inspirations that and i'm, I'm very steadicam based these days and the work i do i work with like an absolutely amazing uh, operator named yuan melnati who is the best steadicam operator i've ever seen in my life but also a genre fan nice. you know his favorite movies are you know, uh, Street Trash, What of the Eye for Steadicam Opera. You know, Opera's got absolutely opera. amazing Steadicam mm -hmm. stuff mm -hmm. in it. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, so you'll see in the last, I don't know, seven or eight years, uh, some of my more recent movies are super Steadicam-y. And uh, that's just because I found my right match uh, in terms of an operator who who has the creativity and also, you know, and that's important when you, you don't operate anymore because I'm not allowed to operate the camera anymore. Um, so because yeah. on a certain budget level, you're not allowed to operate the yeah. camera. You yep. have to hire operators and you get people that are artists. And when you get an artist, uh, they're gold and also yeah. just great people. Joanna's is a wonderful person. So, you know, I'm also inspired by the people I work with. I'm inspired by um, everyday life, um, you know, being with a great partner like I'm with. She inspires me tremendously. 
and helps me get through these tough times, you know? So there's also that, I think we're also inspired by reality um, and the people surrounding us, uh, particularly when they're great people. Yeah. Yeah. I can't say enough for getting to share this horrible experience with somebody. Exactly. Uh, and friends, <laughs> I mean, you know, my friends are also one of my main inspirations. My friends inspire me relentlessly and their creativity and their vision eggs me on. Yeah. Well, it's been my absolute honor spending national Canadian film day with two true Canadian film icons. So thanks again for joining us, Kareem and Jason. Thank you. Thank you so much. When indie singer Gray struggles to write her sophomore album, she teams up with a mysterious producer at his secluded cabin. Though their bond strengthens her music, it also starts to irreparably alter Gray's body and mind in Amelia Moses' sophomore feature film, Bloodthirsty, now on VOD. We were super excited to have producer Michael Peterson and director Amelia Moses join us to chat about this cutting-edge werewolf thriller. What's wrong, you okay? I think I found someone to produce my next album. It says he was tried for murder. He was acquitted. Mr. Daniels. I'm glad you're here, Gray. I get the creeps. Since you got here, your music is... That's beautiful. I can smell it all over you. And something primal. You need to use that. There's nothing that you have to hide from me. I hallucinate that I'm turning into an animal. This place is doing something to you. It's not this place. You can't run away from your destiny. Want to be a predator, or do you want to be a prey? And with us from Bloodthirsty, we have the director, Amelia Moses, and one of the producers, Mike Peterson. Thanks for joining us, guys. So, I want to kick things off. Favorite Canadian horror movie, personal favorite. It doesn't have to be one of the glorified ones, but one that's close to your heart. Oh, man, jumping straight in there. Mm -hmm. I feel like when people say, like, what's your favorite movie? You're like, I can't name a single fucking film. Um, I mean, I have to probably go with a Cronenberg because I have to. Uh, probably Videodrome. I would say. I can't remember the first time I watched that, but it just kind of has seeped into my... Yeah, seriously, once you watch that movie once, it attaches, it, it leeches onto you for life. You're like, oh yeah, that's a part of me now. Yeah, but The Fly too, I think both those are, yeah, up there. You know, I like what The Fly is, how romantic it is. It's like, kind of, it's a really good love story. Until it isn't, you know? Yeah, like the whole like abortion thing that comes in at the end, you're like, whoa, this is like, I didn't expect it to go like the third act to be more about that than about like this monster running around, you know, that's killing people or whatever. Good picks, Amelia. Yeah, that that scene is a, is a dream sequence. Like when she's giving birth to the weird creature, like, holy <laughs> yeah. fuck, I'm like, oh right, it's a dream. <laughs> it's just like such nightmare territory, the idea of giving birth to like a weird monster. And and he's like the David Cronenberg as the doctor is like the perfect evil kind of scary doctor that you'd imagine in a dream. Yeah. Oh, so good, Mike. What do you got? Yeah, yeah. I'm like Amelia. Like I, whenever, as soon as someone asks me this question, I forget everything I've ever seen. Um, 
But you know, I'll, I'll, I'll put like I'll say scanners. Yeah, Sci-fi scanners part. is a good one. Nice chance to plug uh, one of Mike's recent films, Harpoon. For those listening, you should watch Harpoon. It's a lovely recent Canadian genre film. There's a lot of cool, different, crazy horror movies coming out of Canada right now, and Western Canada specifically. And uh, Amelia, um, you're from Vancouver, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, I grew up in Vancouver, but I've lived in Montreal for eight years now. So all my kind of movie making stuff, except for Bloodthirsty, has been in Montreal. So, and oh, Bloodthirsty cool. was the first time I'd been to Alberta. So, cool. so uh, where where do you think the recent surge in um, auteur driven genre movies um, is coming from? The appetite and to make them and to watch them. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Other than you know, things probably just cycle through that way. So all the films from the '80s are probably inspiring people to make those movies now and then you can make them without a cast and the people that make those kinds of movies tend to be pretty hardcore fans also so they're probably maybe more willing to kind of push the ball up the hill to make a movie but i don't know it's probably a whole confluence of things i couldn't put my finger on it but there is definitely a a nice uh renaissance or resurgence of all this stuff yeah a lot of it coming from canada now too which is really nice to see yeah, well, the, the more we can make in Canada, the better. We've always been really good at it. Uh, and I, I think the some of the funding agencies are s- starting to get a little bit more behind it. Yeah. Last sure. couple of years, which is also nice because it is part of our voice. Maybe next they'll uh, get better at comedies. It's one of Canada's finest exports. Exports. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> and uh, Amelia, this isn't your first horror movie. Um your, your previous film is going to be available on Shutter this summer, I believe. Congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you so much. It won't be available in Canada on Shutter, but there will be a Canadian release and it will be available just not on that platform. Um, so do you continue wanting to make horror movies or what attracts you to the horror genre? Yeah, I mean, I would imagine so. I think like I've always loved it in terms of just being a fan, you know, um, growing up and watching like you know, a huge variety of things, but a lot of kind of British horror from, you know, 60s and 70s, Hammer, The Wicker Man, that kind of stuff. And yeah, it always kind of stuck with me, just kind of like the darker side of stories, I guess, but also the kind of the the constructs of them, the tropes, all that kind of stuff, the way these narratives are kind of like played over and over again, but in different ways. And I think that's just like a really cool space to work in. Um, And then when I went to film school, it just wasn't really a thing people made. And it was very, the film school I went to also kind of being in Quebec, I feel like it focused a lot on a kind of specific film people make in Quebec, let's say, you know, um, maybe more like dramas and things like that. And so it took me a while to kind of find my footing with what I wanted to do. But as I was finishing school, I was like, you know what, I just want to delve into the genre. And I made like a short body horror film. And it was the first time that I was like, okay, I feel much more comfortable in this space and kind of just embraced it and kind of found my thing. And is there a vibe of horror that you hope to achieve with a future project? Maybe one that's more grandiose that you're uh, working towards? Uh, Not particularly. Uh, I mean, I think what I like about horror is there's such a wide variety of things that you can look at. And there's so many subgenres and um, I, I don't find it particularly limiting, but I prefer kind of like, you know, psychological horror maybe or things where it feels like the horror is kind of coming from the extension of is an extension of the character and kind of what they're struggling with and that kind of parallel. So I think I might probably continue in that similar vein, but that's kind of what I find uh, exciting within the genre. 
Yeah, very cool. And so how did the two of you find each other for this project? What was the meet cute? It was like out of a romantic comedy, as you say. Exactly. Uh, it was completely, you know, kind of just good luck. The Amelia got connected with me through a mutual friend, a publicist to talk about her first feature. And at that time, um, we were looking for directors for this other horror film. And I said, geez, you should check the script out. And then I talked to my partners and it seemed like a great fit. And here we are. So it just kind of worked out timing wise, luck, kismet, yeah. serendipity. Yeah. And, and, and you know, like I, I was so jealous um, because Amelia got to make two movies before her first movie was out, which to me is like a boss move because it's like, you know, there's very few filmmakers that have done that and to be able to do that is an amazing little you know biographical highlight I think for sure yeah it was just kind of like crazy timing and everything and um it's definitely been a crazy few years making kind of both these projects sort of back to back and I was also kind of fortunate of having made the first project too because I think Mike said like you know you wanted to find someone who'd already made a feature you know so I had that done you know and it wasn't released yet and it was still kind of finding its place in the world but like I had a you know finished product and it just made me really kind of think about how those things work and it's just always good to kind of finish finish films and have something to show and you know that always helps lead to next project and stuff so it was just kind of all these things coming together yeah very cool congratulations and it's Mike's right having uh, both movies coming out around the same time on VOD and one on Shutter's Super Baller so congratulations yeah um, thank you so much um, so the film's very music driven. Um, did it come to you with many music cues already written into it or did you bring kind of your own sensibilities to it as well? Um, most of them were written, I think, before I came on board. Uh, it was kind of a mix of some of Lowell's music that she already had and then some stuff that maybe she was going to had already written for the film. But then kind of within pre-production, that's when she wrote Bloodthirsty. And at the time, it wasn't that wasn't the title of the film. And then we kind of embraced that as the kind of core piece of music and you know became the title and everything so yeah that was very much like Lowell's side of things and then I'm not a songwriter so I was very happy to be like okay you know she's got that covered and she's she's very talented and so for me it was more kind of curating when we were going to hear what some of that was in the script but I kind of reviewed everything once we had our songs and it was like okay where are we going to hear what piece of music and you know, what lyrics are we going to hear and kind of picking and choosing so that it kind of matched the character development and then trying to work with Lauren so that the music kind of felt like a work in progress. You know, um, I hope that comes across since, you know, it's not on screen, you know, it's not like um, super detailed when it's about writing an album, you know, from a kind of technical aspect, but at least I wanted to feel like we were actually watching someone write these songs. And so trying to work with Lauren and her performance and everything to like make that feel like a work in progress, you know, rather than just kind of like, hey, it's a fully completed song done in two seconds. You know, that was more where I came, you know, became involved. And then Emilio working with um, the composer to kind of keep that, you know, all under the same house was also, uh, uh, I wasn't involved in sort of the, the heavy detailed discussions that, you know, obviously Emilio was, but they did a great job of kind of all making this stuff live in the same, the same space. And I think it really, really, works with everyone's strength so nicely yeah i couldn't agree more it uh really does add a nice texture to the film so congratulations again bloodthirsty's uh now on vod 
Um, and before we send you all packing, what, uh, what's keeping you sane in quarantine these days? The last days of quarantine. What's, last days, you think Well, so? <laughs> hopefully, be- before the next vax. Last months, what's, what's keeping you sane these days? I mean, these days, since the weather is warmer, definitely just being able to like go and have a beer in a park sort of thing. Uh, during the winter months, I would say uh, RuPaul's Drag Race was what kept me sane. <laughs> Yeah, Not fantastic. a horror answer, but a fun answer. No, I got obsessed with Ink Master during quarantine. I've seen every single episode of every season, even the spinoffs. I'm not <laughs> proud of it. TV comfort food, you know. I think it's where TV truly excels. <laughs> yeah, Mike, what's keeping you sane? I, I don't know if I would. Uh, that might be assuming too much. I'm not sure I kept that sane over the pandemic. Ah, so a lot of Philip K. Dick. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I was so busy with development on a bunch of projects. That's awesome, man. That it was, I never got kind of the break that I kept hearing about or kind of, I suppose, dream of a little bit. Um, so really, I just, I probably ate too much and drank too much and exercised too little. So probably did a whole bunch of stuff that is not good for me to get through it. <laughs> well, the sun's out. Guns can come out soon, Mike. Uh, but thanks no, again I gotta for get John. I got my, my six packs in the cooler right now. <laughs> Thanks again, Mike and Amelia. It was great having you. Yeah, thank you so much. Mail day! Mail day! <laughs> this is mail day. A. Oh, all Canadian E-H. picks. Less like shipping it. costs. <laughs> mail de A. We're doing all Canadian picks. So we're going to pretend we got these in the mail recently. I legit did get two of these in the mail recently. I have one that I still haven't opened. So. All right. Or two. So what do I got? Oh, shit, son. Rituals, baby. Oh. Hal Holbrook, Lawrence Dane, one of the finest deliverance ripoffs. Bunch of old doctors from med school go to the woods, get wasted and argue while being hunted and picked off one by one. Who are the true savages is what this movie asks. Lovely. And this is the best the movie's ever looked. And it still doesn't look great. There's a lot of night shots in the woods on film that hasn't been treated the best. But I do believe that it is the best it will look for a bit. Yeah, I'm excited to pick that up because, yeah, the only version I've seen was a VHS rip, super dark. So you can't really see a lot what goes on once the lights go out, which is usually the third act. Yeah, so this was put out by Scorpion. Great performances throughout. Commentary with star producer Lawrence Dane, who also made the heavenly bodies. (laughs) The The wonderfully heavenly bodies. The good version of Flashdance. The great Canadian legend Lawrence Dane. And he's in Scanners as well. Yeah. What do you got, Rhett? I uh, am starting it off with a local one here, Ghost Keeper, which was filmed right in our own backyard in uh, Lake Louise. Some good friends and family almost of the show here that worked on this, and so it's a, it's a weird little kind of uh, ghost film, as the title would imply. 
uh, set at Deer Lodge, which is like the cheap place if you go to Lake Louise down the street from the Fairmont uh, Hotel. Yeah, and they claim most of it was lit by either daylight or candles, as the stories go. And it is. Quite, and it's a Wendigo film. Quite dark, but yeah, it's some some interesting stuff in there for sure. They're trying to get a sequel going. I don't didn't didn't manifest, but hopefully one day we can get our Ghostkeeper. The legend of Ghostkeeper <laughs> remains, and that's from Code Red. All right, I got next Kung Fu Elliot, one of the finest Canadian documentaries in recent memory. This disc is put out by the filmmakers themselves, so Google Kung Fu Elliot, go buy it. This movie is so crazy. So it's about a dude on uh, the East Coast who fancies himself a bit of a Steven Seagal. And it's a documentary following him as he makes his uh, handmade kung fu films. Super charming, um, kind of like a Canadian-American movie. But about midway, things go really dark and you start to wonder if the film's real or not. Like if this documentary's constructed. And I don't think that it's fake. I've listened to the commentary, watched all the deleted scenes, watched as many interviews as possible. I think Mr. Elliot does actually just have a breakdown during this documentary. And uh, let's just say this is where I learned what FetLife was. Oh. was from this film. <laughs> Did you sign up? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was like, oh boy, good. Um, so yeah, they call it FUBAR Meets American Movie. Couldn't put it better, but uh, it's so charming. I've seen it like five times. I totally love this movie and I hope more people will watch it. Yeah, Kung Fu Elliot. Not even on my radar, so I gotta check that out. Maybe I'll steal it from you. Yeah, I'll leave it here with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, next up is a crazy '90s lo-fi science fiction film called Phobe, the Xenophobic Experiments. I think it was released in '95, but I think filmed in the early '90s at like a broadcast TV station in Saint Catharines, Ontario. A shot on VHS or video or whatever, and it just has a really super lo-fi quality. Mullets, uh, what is it? Coors Light sweaters, predators that look like they just raided the Canadian Tire for their attire, but just such a wild. Uh, well, they actually get some crane thing. shots and stuff in the movie. Yeah. With a literal crane, yeah. Mm -hmm. They had a crane and they hung a, put a camera on a crane, <laughs> like an industrial crane. So uh, it's one of those can-do movies. You're just amazed that they were able to make it. A lot of, you know, really regional, a lot of uh, small, you know, people who aren't trained actors but ha have that moxie. The end credits are like, yeah, 10 minutes long. It's a... It's a super fun sort of ride. And is this one on Blu-ray or just DVD? DVD from, uh, not Severin, what is it? Inter Intervision. In Intervision, Intervision, which is almost Severin. And uh, it's got a whole bunch of extras, including like a new director's cut. And, yeah, new effects. Well, new, but they, they definitely look of the time still. Old CGI-y kind of effects, but super fun, really charming. Just a, <laughs> a really memorable uh, Canadian can-do film. So, cool. All right, my last one is a recent Canadian action film called For the Sake of Vicious, which is put out by Raven Banner and Dread, and I had the pleasure of seeing this film at the Blood in the Snow Film Festival last year. The action choreography in For the Sake of Vicious is so crazy good. Um, I'm not going to compare it to John Wick. I'm going to compare it more to like the Indonesian martial arts movies now, like Night Comes for Us and stuff that the raid has inspired. The grimier, gross ones. All the deaths are like horror style. So you'll have these elaborately choreographed, beautifully played out stunt work that ends in really gross body horror. Um, oh. So this is a combo that 
checks many boxes for me. And I know that there's a lot of great stunt performers behind the actual production and writing and directing of this film. I want to give them a shout out. The Toronto action scene is uh, creating some really cool stuff. And, uh, you know, for the sake of Vicious inspires future movies like it, man. I am pretty excited for action movies coming out of Canada. You're talking stunts like like car stunts, fighting stunts, there's, there's motorcycle stunts, cars. Yep, yeah, there's an explosion, people being thrown through walls, uh, any household item you can think of being used as a murder weapon, Halloween masks, motorbike helmets. Oh. It's a cool. It's a cool movie. It's a gross movie. Very entertaining. Film. I uh, was a huge fan of For the Sake of Vicious. More characters need to have a motorcycle helmet. That's like my favorite killer, you know, if they just wear 100%, man. Yeah, if you have someone in a motorcycle helmet for at least 20 minutes of your movie, it's probably good. Yeah. Nightmare Beach, baby. Yeah, or uh, yeah, even the Rent-A-Cop rent with Burt Reynolds that has this awesome... And uh, Night School, too. Night School. The killer is that, too. So, yeah, more more motorcycle-clad killers, please. <laughs> What's your last one, right? Last one, another uh, Canadian tax shelter film. This one is Spasm. Early 80s, really cool uh, snake film uh, with Peter Fonda and a really drunk Oliver Reed, uh, Tangerine Dream. They're credited as the composer, but really they only do one track at the end credits. But it's it's a banger track for sure. But it's got a really awesome, notable like body horror kind of guy gets attacked by the snake and his whole body starts to pus and ooze and explode from, from the bite. Oh, sounds awesome, man. I uh, just got Killer Party from Mr. William Fruitt in the mail as well. Another great Canadian classic. Another William Fruitt film, yeah. So he's done this and, and that and Wedding in White, and he's a Canadian treasure. So got to shout him out today on the podcast. So yeah, a lot of good variety of cool Canadian movies available on physical media. Buy them, you know, support the filmmakers. Physical media lives forever, everyone. Producer Rhett Miller in with the Golden Boys Report. Hello, everyone. I am here to report a special brief. We subjected ourselves the other day to the John Travolta Vanity Project Battlefield Earth from 2000. Although if you look at the special effects, you'd swear it was like 1993 or something like that. His weird, wild adaptation or... True story, I don't know, of L. Ron Hubbard's tale of... Repressed the, people. The repressed people. The, the, cho the chosen one. Dreadlocky kind of predator dudes that are giants. And, and they want all the gold. They want you to work and get the gold to give them the gold. A statement on advanced capitalism, maybe, or something. This movie <laughs> sucks so much. Like, I'd, I'd heard it sucked. I'd never seen it because it's so long. Like, if I'm going to watch a movie I've heard sucks, but I'm, like, curious... 90 minutes max. This thing's over two hours, I think. It feels like Lawrence of Arabia long. Like, this <laughs> felt like three hours. And every single shot, I'm not even being hyperbole here, but every single shot is tilted to the side. So it's Dutch tilted. So everything, like, you kind of want to tilt your head That's when you're That's the best part it. of the movie. <laughs> no, the best part is how Barry Pepper just yells all the time. Like, he yells and runs. Like, you're just talking to him uh, yeah. and he just yells and Barry runs. Barry Pepper was the best part. He actually was giving a shit. And I think Travolta gave a shit. I just don't think he was capable of the role. And actually, Forrest Whitaker was dope in it, I thought. Yeah, they're just unhinged, which is fun. You know, unhinged yeah. Travolta, like unhinged Nicholas There's no Cage. focus. You yeah. don't really know much about these villains or like know about yeah. their styles of repression. And there's this running gag that whenever 
Barry Pepper's character gets free, he like lets himself be captured again. Yeah. It happens like three times. We had to like rewind it because we we're trying to figure out like how, why is he back in prison? He just escaped. Yeah. This is the third time he's been there. He yeah. just ends up there every time. And there's never a fight that leads to him back in prison because he's, he's like a pacifist, right? So yeah. He's like, yeah. okay, take me back. So it like, doesn't make for an exciting sci-fi movie. But yeah, you definitely see it for the you know the over the top performances and just just it's a product of its time. The goal to to think that this would be you know a big big market vehicle. This was Travolta like at his peak. He could have did whatever movie he wanted, and this was his passion. This was project. the one he called in the favors for. Yeah, yeah. Weird man. <laughs> yeah, good. So stuff, watch watch it maybe if you want to. I mean, it's one of those like I'm never watching it again. You, you need to earn your stripes, and this is the one you know of, of that era, the pretty most notable kind of bomb. Maybe Adventures of Pluto Nash with Eddie Murphy, but that's not nearly as interesting as this one. This one, with all the Scientology ties and everything, sort of feels like homework to, to see what the heck is going on behind those closed doors in uh, Hollywood. There. <laughs> <laughs> well, definitely not a Canadian horror movie to end the Canadian horror episode on but uh, definitely shows that uh, hard work and integrity beats budget every time <laughs> as long as you have clear creative ambitions and a team that will follow you to the end so thanks for uh, joining us for the fourth cuff cast and thanks to jason kareem mike and amelia for sharing the stories of making their cool canadian movies and for all the canadian uh, horror filmmakers out there or aspiring canadian horror filmmakers aim for the stars don't let people say oh your movie is canadian canadian movies can be anything uh, i'm tired of that little box where they're like oh i don't want it to look like a canadian movie Guys, we've had Canadian movies covered in neon, we've had Canadian documentaries, we've had huge Canadian comedies, slashers, dramas, Antarctic adventures. Nothing is really a Canadian movie, it's just Canadian stories. So let's keep telling them, and let's keep telling cool ones. So thanks for listening. Let's go.